Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Today's guest is known for his positive words of encouragement to other authors and also his best-selling thrillers and mysteries. Our paths first crossed probably more than a decade ago at a writer's conference, and at the time he was sharing uh, with some new attendees how to get the most out of the weekend, and over the years I found that that's just a common thing for John to do. So mm-hmm. I'm really thrilled that John Land is joining me today. He is the USA Today best-selling author of 50 books, including 10 titles in the critically acclaimed Caitlin Strong series. His works have received awards and accolades, including multiple international book awards, the USA Books Best Book Award, the Beverly Hills Book Award for Best Mystery, and an American Book Fest Best Book Award for Mystery and Suspense. For three years, John wrote the Murder, She Wrote book series based on the hit CBS television show starring Angela Lansbury. He also wrote the film Dirty Deeds, which has been downloaded more than 50 million times via various streaming services ever since its release. John is a 1979 graduate of Brown University and lives in Providence, Rhode Island. So, John, thanks for joining me today. Can, can we just keep talking about my bio? Because it makes me sound a lot more impressive than I really am. Um, sure, why not? We'll do it. Ah. Um, there, was, um, there was this one conference I went to, and, and someone had given, uh, given a friend of mine a glowing introduction. So whenever he came up on stage, he said, that was the kindest introduction I've ever written. <laughs> and everybody laughed. I was like, that's a good line. i got to remember that line. There you yeah. go. Yeah. So, well, it's great to have you, and it's been a crazy year. So, first of all, we hope that you are feeling well and safe and healthy and up there in Rhode Island. So far, so good. Yeah, that's good. I know it's been a nutty year. We were talking, you know, off the air just about publishing a little bit, and we'll touch on some of that, and I'm excited to to hear some of your insights on all of that. But I have to ask you first about this movie that you wrote, Dirty Deeds. Like, I yeah. hadn't heard about that. I didn't know this was an aspect of your, of your work, and it's been downloaded more than 50 million times. What, what is that uh, movie all about, and how do people find it? Well, it, it's interesting because um, I always tell people, no matter what I write, um, and this is an exercise in storytelling, whatever I write ends up a thriller. It doesn't matter what it starts out as. So yeah. Dirty Deeds was a, it started out as a teen comedy that I, was, that I wrote, actually, or planned to write with a high school senior I was mentoring and screenwriting for his senior project. Oh, so, nice. And his name was John Thies. This is back in, oh my God, 2001, 2002, a long time ago. And um, I thought instead of me trying to teach him how to write a script, let's write one together. Show, not tell. Do it. Um, in the course of that, as I say, everything I write becomes a thriller. The concept we came up with, I should say I came up with, um, was a takeoff on the 12 labors of Hercules. Because in those days, a lot of classic things like that were being redone. Shakespeare's 
I forgot what the play was, but it was redone as 10 Things I Hate About You with Heath Ledger, as a matter of fact. So yeah. there was this trend about going into history and classic fiction, classic literature and doing things. So the Twelve Labors of Hercules, uh, which are enshrined in mythology, became the dirty deeds, ten dares that a high school senior need, has to do um, or, decide, or elects to do on the Friday night before homecoming weekend between dusk and dawn. And the dirty deeds are, this, are, the leg, are a legend of this suburban high school um, kids have been expelled, they've been arrested. One kid got through eight deeds, disappeared, and was never seen again. <laughs> I love and of it. course, that becomes a twist. So on this night, Zach Harper is going to become the latest to try to complete the dirty deeds. And it's interesting, because here's a nice aside for writers. When the director, David Kendall, who had still is a, a, a terrific director specializing mostly in Disney and Nickelodeon shows, but we really wanted him because he's great working with young people, and that's what our movie was, yeah. a high school movie. He read the script, and he said, I really want to, I love this script, but I don't want to direct it. And I said, why? And he goes, because Zach Harper, the hero, is doing the quest for popularity to prove himself to his friends, to leave a legacy. That's not a heroic quest. That's not a noble quest. Great stories are about people who do, who are about heroes who do things for other people. So right on the spot, I said to David Kendall, I said, David, what if he steps in and does the dirty deeds because the freshman kid who's already in the script, he's befriended, um, has stepped up to do it. And he yeah. knows what that means. So he takes his place, essentially. And that changed the entire nature of the movie to the point where we were able to get Milo Ventimiglia, who has gone on to become a hugely successful actor in This Is Us on NBC. Oh, we got yeah. Milo Ventimiglia as our lead. We had Zoe Saldana, who has gone on to Guardians of the Galaxy, Star Trek. I mean, she's got an avatar. So yeah, we yeah. had the legend, um, you know, it's like it, when you look at a movie like um, uh, Days to Confused and you look at all the stars who are doing their first roles ever, Ben Affleck, Joey Lauren Adams, I mean, so many people broke out in that movie. So to a lesser degree, that was Dirty Deeds. But I honestly believe it happened because the story was a, about a noble quest, about a kid you really wanted to root for because he was doing something for somebody else. And I had so much fun. It was such a great experience to be out there for the entire shoot. Um, and I, you know, I've continued to write screenplays. I've, I've written probably more screenplays than I have books, and I've written over 50 books. I oh haven't had the yeah. same level of success. But I did just finish the pilot for a TV streaming series um, based on my Caitlin Strong novels, which I know we're going to talk about. Yeah. And that was a fascinating experience, um, and hopefully we're going to see that on television sometime. I, don't, I won't say soon, but... Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, we'll talk about Caitlin in a bit. So first, congrats on the, um, on the Dirty Deeds program. That's pretty interesting, and I love how you pivoted your story, even on the spot, and said, look, let's make it a noble quest. Let's make it a quest about you know, saving and helping someone else. It, one of the things I've learned from screenwriting, which is a crucial trait for any writer, novelist or screenwriter, 
even you know whatever it is is you have to listen hmm. publishing and filmmaking are team efforts they're not individual efforts sure self-published some self-published authors do very very well i guess that's pretty close to a solitary effort um, but everything is about how to make it better in screenwriting a lot of it is the limitations of film and the limitations of casting and it's kind of like in film and in publishing you have to have the attitude the answer is yes what was the question <laughs> and if you've if you've written a script that calls for a 28 year old or a 30 year old or a 40 year old and a producer calls you and says hey we've got this actress but she's 60 can you can you can will it work and you say absolutely it'll work does it get the movie made because if it gets the movie made you make it work and especially it's actually a process I thrive on because it's not about making the project different. It's about making the project better. Mm. Um, and when I rewrite a script because of budget, like I might write a movie that's $50 million, but the producer has five. That's yeah. not an exaggeration. That happens. So I've got to change the film substantially because, and a lot, so, you know, I've got to cut $45 million out of the movie. But wow. I, start, I start with the attitude that I'm not going to write I'm not going to write a cheapened version of what I already did. I'm going to write a better version of what I've already done. Um, and I think that's a distinction that's important. But um, my first, uh, Tony Mendez, the late, great Tony Mendez, the late, great Tony Mendez, used to say, you name the writer, I'll name the editor. Because in those days... Everybody had a Maxwell Perkins, who was, of course, Fitzgerald Hemingway's, uh, the most, arguably the most famous editor of all time, in, along with Bennett Cerf from Random House. Um, Bennett Cerf, who famously said after publishing, I think, one of the great novels of the 20th century, Day of the Locust, which sold all 500 copies, said, I'll oh never goodness. publish a Hollywood novel again. Um, and, of course, he, ended, he later did. Um, but editing is thought to be a lost art. It shouldn't be. Because... Editors are crucial to the revision, to the, the process of taking something that's good and making it great, mm. um, knowing where to cut, knowing how to, uh, this is why, you know, and we're thriller writers here. I'm a thriller writer. Yeah. You're a thriller writer. Robert Ludlum is the thriller writer who wanted me to do, who made me want to do what I do. I fell in love with his books. And the first 10 books he had, Ludlum, were edited by Richard Marrick. Richard Marrick made Ludlum a number one best-selling author to the point where he was able to get a lot more money from Random House where he was edited by Joe Fox. Ludlum never wrote another book anywhere near as good. The last book he wrote with Richard Marrick was The Born Identity. Um, no other book he wrote after The Born Identity, in my opinion, even approached the brilliance of The Holcroft Covenant, The Moderese Circle the Chancellor Manuscript, the Gemini Contenders, the Matlock Paper. Writers, if you think you don't need an editor, you're in the wrong business. So, John, when you're working with a publisher, with an editor, uh, director, or so on, how do you know which hills to die on? In other words, do you ever have some ideas where you're like, look, I cannot you know, give in or, or, or change this idea? Or do you say, look, I'm just here to work with you to make this the best project possible, and whatever changes that requires, I'm willing to do it. Um, it there's, that's a great question. And I think a lot of times editors um, 
directors, they want you, they, they give you step 10, but, but somewhere between step one, which is doing nothing, and, do, and step 10, which is doing everything, there is step five. You know, you take that, here's what, the job of a writer, especially a screenwriter, is to listen to what the director and the producers are saying and the stars, the actors, are saying and try to interpret what they mean and give them what they want, even if it's not what they asked for. Hmm. Um, you know, if, you, if it's about pacing, if it's about, you know, adding another character, um, you know, there aren't a lot of swords you die on as a writer. Um, uh, there have been a few for me, um, you know, uh, and, but they're usually very, very major. Yeah. Uh, for one example, I've got a script called Sleep Like the Dead. Under a different title, it was going to be directed by a lun- the lunatic genius of Hollywood, a director named Tony Kay, who had only done one movie at that time, American History X, but w- it was such a celebrated film, he became legendary. But he, was, but he literally had issues and mm. didn't work for a long time, and, and Sleep Like the Dead was going to become his big comeback film. And there were two timelines in the movie. One was real and one was not. But the thing in the, in the script is, because the script is still out there, you don't know which is the few dream state and which is reality. Neither oh, okay. does the, 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 the... So his note, after telling me how much he loved it, but, you know, he, as I said, he was a, a troubled man. Um, he said, we can't do a movie where uh, two-thirds of the film never happened. So I said to him, have you seen The Usual Suspects? It worked for them. <laughs> you know, um, did you know Bruce Willis was dead, you know, in, uh, in um, uh, oh, The Sixth Sense, right? So oh, The Sixth Sense, yeah. The movie, yeah. So when someone asks you to, destro- uh, to do something which will destroy the integrity of the script, it's, yeah. kind of like a, it's kind of like going to a contractor who comes over to give you an estimate on what you want uh, on improvements in your house, and, he, and instead of saying, here's what I think we can do, he tells you, knock it down, let's, let's start from scratch. Right. No, no, because it's never going to work when you start from scratch. It never does, and I've done that. I've yeah. made that mistake where I started from scratch, and I convinced myself it was the right thing to do, um, but it wasn't. And, you know, it's like, and, and, and speaking of the usual suspects, this, this is uh, uh, to the question you asked. Here's my, here's the best way to answer it. Um, the Usual Suspects, which is to me one of the greatest screenplays ever written and one and one of the best movies I've ever seen. It's a perfect film and it's a perfect script. Hmm. They couldn't get it financed because no one understood the script. Nobody got the script. The same thing was true of Chinatown, the, one of the greatest screenplays and movies ever made. Chinatown, Jack Nicholson. Well, Brian Singer, the director, and Christopher McCrory, the screenwriter who had made no money on this, they had been trying to get it sold for two years or something like that, finally were sitting in front of a, of, of a studio exec they've never named, never said who it was, a vice president of production at a, at a studio, who said, I love this script. I'm ready to make it now. I have only one note, one thing you need to do, and we start tomorrow. And Brian Singer says, sure, what is it? Verbal kint can't be Kaiser Sose. <laughs> So Brian looks at Kristen McCrory, then looks at the producer and the, the, the exec and goes, you know that's the whole movie, right? <laughs> Silence. So when, you get to, when someone is asking you to break the entire script apart and basically start from scratch, if you're getting paid, do it. But 99% of the time, you're not getting paid. You're, <laughs> you have opened the proverbial Pandora's box. And the... 
polar opposite of a great editor and a great story editor, a great conceptual editor, like our mutual friend Jeff Ayers. Hmm. Um, the difference between what they do and what someone saying, you need to start from scratch. No, you want to take what you have and work with people who tell you how to make it better, not start from scratch. And that's what they, you know, verbal can't, can't be Kaiser so say, come on. You know, Bruce Willis can't be dead. Um, you know, oh, what, what if he was really, you know, come on. You know, this is, this is the mentality sometimes of these people. You know, literally, um, Robert Evans had to twist Roman Polanski and Jack Nicholson's um, arms to do Chinatown because I'll do my bad Robert Evans impersonation and I'll, 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 put, a, I'll put a bleep in. Uh, but there was a problem. <laughs> Nobody knew what the bleep it was about. So they couldn't, he couldn't convince anyone into the movie, so he, he promised he would put Robert Town in a room for six months with Polanski to fix what was wrong with the script that was keeping everyone from understanding it. Mm. Um, so, but there you go. Um, you never get it right. If you think you're going to write something as a first draft, give it one quick once over and then publish it, you're in the wrong business. You know, it's good that you mention that because uh, so many people that I talk to, um, and, and it's true for myself as well, we go through numerous drafts, draft after draft, to try and, you know, hone something, make it the very best that it can possibly be. And I think that attitude is out there, which you just mentioned, John, is that people say, okay, I'll write it, I'll do a quick read-through, whatever, send it out there, whatever, it's a novel, screenplay, whatever. There's not too many people who can pull that off and write, you know, publishable stories. Well, let's talk about one who boasted all his career, Tom Clancy, that he never rewrote. That essentially he did longhand, typed it out, and then submitted it, and that was it. Hmm. Well, that's why, in my opinion, Tom Clancy's books are all two or 300 pages too long. Because there's a tremendous amount of repetition and a tremendous amount of information we don't need. Now, I know he's an icon. I know he created the techno-thriller. I, I, I get all that. But you're not going to tell me that you need that a story that can be told in 400 pages should be told in 600 pages. There was, in fact, uh, one of his one of his um, written with authors turned in a book, um, and was the, they sent the manuscript back to him and said it's not long enough. Hmm. You need to add another 40,000 words. <laughs> so so basically. You're not selling a book. You're selling a. You're not judging a, a book on a story. You're judging a book on its weight. Yeah. <laughs> you're oh, judging a book yeah. on its page count. What is what is with that? To me, the best books Clive Cussler ever wrote were, the, were well. He did write some great ones that were longer as well. But Race the Titanic was one of his shorter books compared to the six hundred to these monstrous ones he's been writing the last few years. I think when you're right around a hundred thousand words, you're perfect. And there's something about that, and maybe it's the world we live in. You know, 368, maybe 400 pages. Um, but these, you know, it, it's hard at 600, 700 pages. Now, I've read some great books that are that long. Yeah. Stan from Stephen King which comes to mind as one of the longest, best books I have ever read. But the fact is, I've read very few books that were exceptionally long that I ever, fin- that I, I ever lo- enjoyed enough to really want to finish. Yeah, interesting. You know, you, yeah. you know, so it's just now a book needs to be as long as it needs to be. Yeah. But 
you don't want to write to a length. You don't want to, you want to write to the story that you're telling. Now, for when we're talking about story, if, if you have a great story to tell, it's your second, it's your first, it's your third book, and you finish it, or you're into it and you realize, you know what, this is only going to finish it about 40, 45,000 words. Yeah. I, it's only going to be half the length of a traditional thriller. How am I going to sell it? Then you have to ask yourself, um, and I do this all the time, what is missing from the story? Mm. What would supplement the story? What you basically have to invent is another subplot. You have to invent an entire another story that is related to what you've already done, and then you bring the two, you, you bring the two stories together. Tie them together, yeah. You tie them together. That, that's the nature of... of um, you know, you mentioned I do murder. She wrote. I've, do, I've done six books in the murder. She wrote series. Series, um, the fifth, you know, was out recently. The sixth comes out for for the holidays, um, and those were the first books I ever wrote in first person. And oh, you talk about a sea change, Steve. Yeah. You talk about apples and oranges, because I am a huge believer. There are certain things. I'm a very manipulative writer. <laughs> all my cha- I, I write very short chapters. They all begin with hooks, and they all end with cliffhangers. And when you write in parallel plot structure, where you have two or three things going on, you have a cliffhanger, and then it's about two or three, four chapters before you get back to, to, to find out, to get to that point. It's yeah. the very definition of, of, of keeping the reader in suspense and making it impossible for them to put the book down. That's, that's, that's why you use cliffhangers. But in a first-person book, you end, I, I, I did end almost every chapter with a cliffhanger, but then you give away the cliffhanger at the beginning of the next chapter. <laughs> so it's an entirely different process because your hero by nature is in every single scene. James yeah, Lee tough. Burke cheats this better than anyone. He has Roby Show's first-person stuff, but then he has Roby Show narrating stuff in third-person, basically saying, I heard about the." He's basically saying, I learned this later. Um, yep. Here's what happened. So he he has it both ways. James Patterson has done books where part of the books are narrated in first person and part of them are told in third person. I don't like that format. To me, that's a cheat. To me, and I not that I'm averse to cheating, by the way, I am manipulative. <laughs> but to me, when you shift POVs within your book, you destroy the integrity of the story because the reader is. In, is, is swept away. But that's what, when you're reading a great book, and, and, I, and it's something that never changes with time. Um, no matter how old you are, from the time your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather tells you your first story or reads you your first story at, in, while you're, you know, a bedtime story, as, as, as they're called. Yeah. Um, we never lose that part of our, of our minds, that imagination. And the great thing... Uh, about, you know, reading is it makes us feel like kids again. People would ask me why I was obsessed with Game of Thrones. Hmm. Why I, it was like, it wasn't just a show for me. It was, I, I, it was, I mean, I, I'm not alone. I mean, a bunch of 40, a bunch of guys in the gym do bench pressing and talking about game, what's going to happen in the final two episodes of Game of Thrones. Why <laughs> did I feel that way? Because Game of Thrones made me feel the same way I felt when my father took me to the original Jason and the Argonauts, which was with, a, with you know, the stop-motion animation, and it was you know, incredible special effects. For an eight-year-old kid, it, was, it opened a whole new world for me. Um, I, I couldn't have felt 
more the same about Game of Thrones. And, and here's what I learned from all that, and I said this to, in an interview recently, and I've been saying it all the time now. The mark of a great book, not just a great thriller, but especially true of page-turners, the mark of a great thriller is that when you read it, it feels like it was written only for you. Hmm. That the writer said, I'm going to write a book just for you, and you're going to hear my voice the whole time. And everybody who reads the book, and if you're Lee Child, that's millions of people. If you're John Land, that's maybe 25 or 30. Uh, but all 25 <laughs> of those 30 people felt that, that that Strong from the Heart, my most recent Caitlin Strong series book, um, my female Texas Ranger, when they felt that they read that book, they felt it was written just for them. Because when p- people used to say to me in interviews like this, what's the most important thing a writer needs to know? Hmm. What's the most important thing a writer needs to do? And for 25 years, 30 years, I said, um, tell a great story. A beginning, a middle, and an end. If you have those three things and you have a great story, you'll be fine. Now I tell people, have fun telling a great story. Mm, I like because that. if you have fun as the writer, the reader is going to have fun reading what you've created. And by, by the same token, though, if you're not having fun with what you're doing, if you're not discovering things on the fly, if, you're not, if you don't have those those great moments of those great aha moments where things start to fall together and you surprise yourself. If you don't have that, you don't, you are creating something that isn't going to feel organic. It's not going to feel natural. Hmm. And you want to have so much fun and love you. You've got to be your own number one fan. In other words, some call it ego, you know, some call it ego. I would think that's part of it. Yeah. But if you're not your, if, if you don't love your own book, why should I go out and buy it and read it? <laughs> now, that's a good point. You know, it's so easy sometimes to get caught up in the doldrums of revising, editing, or whatever. That sometimes you're like, man, this has become, it's not fun anymore. And, but what you've pointed out is, is, is really important is that um, if you enjoy the process, and like you said, you know, find discoveries, find moments of, aha, oh, wow, Eureka, that's interesting. I wonder where that will go. Your readers will you know, be glad to join on that journey. But if it's something that you're, you know, you've lost interest in, you know, keeping your readers is going to be tough. Absolutely. And yeah. um, I'm a pantser. I, don't, I, I do a one-page... I do a one-page synopsis, which is you know basically maybe three or four hundred words, just to, yeah. just so a uh, publisher knows which which direction I want to go in. Um, but I never stick to them. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, my late my second book in the Capital Crime series, Margaret Truman's Capital Crime series, which I've taken over. Um, my second book, my first one, Murder on the Metro, comes out in, in February. Murder at the CDC. Um, this is an office in Washington, not in Atlanta, um, which won't be out to the following February. It, it all stems, the whole book was going to jump off from the murder of um, a, a, someone important to one of the major characters. Yeah. Well, I introduced her, and I liked her so much I couldn't kill her. So <laughs> I couldn't do it. So I killed one of her coworkers because I've got to have a murder at the CDC, and she's in a coma. But I couldn't kill her. 
And this is the second time this has happened to me. Um, in my Caitlin Strong series, everyone, or, or I think the consensus favorite character, uh, to, to give you a notion of my writing, it's, it's not Caitlin Strong. It's either Leroy Epps, who's a ghost. He's not even a person, and everyone loves him. <laughs> or most people would choose the seven-foot Venezuelan hitman, the deadliest man in the world, Guillermo Paz, mm. who in book one of the series, this guy is seven feet tall, rock-hard muscle, 300 pounds. And, you know, if you need somebody killed, you call Paz. Um, and he comes, he's got his armies, he's get out. So in the first book in the series... Paz is hired to kill Caitlin Strong, my female Texas Ranger. But because I wanted a character I could model after Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men. Yeah. I saw that movie, it gave me chills, and I've got to write a character like that. So I created Guillermo Paz. So he's, supposed to, he's not supposed to make it through the first book. But he was such a great character. And that's the key. People say, how do I write so many books? How do I write so quickly? I let the characters do the work for me. I create them and I let them go. I take them off the leash. And I think the hardest thing for writers who haven't had success, who don't have confidence, who lack a little bit of the... Who, you, and you, you know, having confidence as a writer is like having money. If you're rich, you don't need it. And if you're poor, you can't get it. <laughs> uh, and the same thing is true of confidence. You can only be successful if you can only be confident if you're successful. But you can only be successful if you're confident. So, being confident um, in what you do, how do you how do you get to that point? And what, what what one of the ways you can do it is trust your characters. Trust your characters that when you're writing dialogue, if you're writing the dialogue, you're screwed. You have to be transcribing what you hear them saying. Mm. They, the words have to come from them to the point, and, and I think, and how do you know, the, you know, this is, help, this is where being a screenwriter has helped me, but the bottom line, and something we can all learn from Elmore Leonard, you can read an Elmore Leonard scene of dialogue w- without any he says or she says, yeah. and you can know who's speaking, because the cadence of how they talk is different from each other. So there's a distinguishing factor. So Leonard didn't like to use he said, she said. So he has a lot of dialogue that almost looks like a screenplay. Yeah. You, we can learn from that. It's a minimalistic um, kind of writing. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. But you want to create characters who are so real to you that they will pop off the page for the reader, too. When you create a character you're supposed to kill and you couldn't do it, you know you've, you've created a great character. Because like you've, that. You, yeah. you have a stake in that character. You want that character to come back. Um, and, the, and here's the great thing. And this is what's... I've done 50 books, and I'm doing this more than I've ever done it. Um, in the Caitlin Strong series... Um, I love I love the the mission statement of, of the story blender. By the way, I mean I think it's, <laughs> it it allows me to, to really jump on some of the things I enjoy talking about. Absolutely, sure. Um, yeah. But the, the the challenge of doing a series um, is how do you avoid a series getting stale? Yeah. And and you've done a few. You know, you did Night Rook. You had a great branded series, a la John D. McDonald with the colors of, for Travis McGee. Hmm. Um, Sue Grafton, the letters for Kinsey yep. Milhone, um, you know, so you, that you had these branded series. 
Um, somebody, you know, uh, Lauren Sanders did the Deadly Sin series. Okay, um, yeah. And, and, it, and it, it's a, you're creating a brand. But after six or seven, eight, nine books, <laughs> um, even, even the Reacher books at some point ha- start to feel the same. Because especially with Reacher, he's the only character who keeps coming back. Yeah. And, 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 and they're great, and they're basically they're Westerns. So how do you freshen them up? Well, with Caitlin Strong, I have a recurring cast. Um, you know, she, but you need to, the best way to freshen a series is not necessarily to change the characters. It's to add new characters to the mix. Hmm. And, and I go by the rule, and I'll give you a specific example. Create characters who could carry a series on their own. So people say, hey, are you going to do a book with this character by themselves? A spinoff. Yeah. Robert Craze did not know he was going to write Joe Pike novels as standalones mm. when he created Joe Pike for the Elvis Costello detective series. You know, he didn't know that. It happened organically yeah. um, because Joe Pike kind of took over. With me, in book, um, Strong from the Heart is book 11 in the series. In book 10, you know, the characters are getting a little older, and I felt I needed more conflict. I needed to confront Caitlin with something different. So I introduce, uh, not really a spoiler alert because you know it from the beginning of Strong from the Heart, I introduce her deadly half-sister. Oh, not only is the sister deadly, she's, a prof- she's, uh, she's the, the female equivalent in the assassin world of Guillermo Pass. <laughs> uh, and her name is Nola Delgado. And as I said, she's Caitlin's half-sister. She's, so not only is she about 15 years younger, not only is she having a, an affair with Caitlin's surrogate son, who's a senior in college, she's, a co- she's basically a college kid who kills people. But, <laughs> and, and, but I have so much fun with, um, with that character. She's such a murderous individual. She doesn't understand, you know, she doesn't see killing as a big deal, you know? It's how she was raised. And it's like another thing. Guillermo Paz, I mentioned him. Not only is he still alive, one of the most fun things I do in the series is this is a man who's searching for spiritual enlightenment. He's trying to get to a new place in his his spirit, in his soul. And he never quite gets there. And he's, done, he's tried teaching English to immigrants. He's audited, freshman, he's audited college classes. Um, he was a volunteer um, at a daycare center. Which, which, <laughs> you got a seven-foot man who's killed thousands of people in his life. And all these little... And, and story time is he tells, he tells the story about how he killed all the men um, when he went home for his mother's funeral and he killed all the men he, he left alive when he left Venezuela. And he's telling this story to a bunch of five-year-olds. Oh, my goodness. You know, in Strong from the Heart, he gets a job as an elementary school gym teacher. <laughs> and he builds an obstacle course, and he's teaching them live fire exercises with Nerf bullets. So they have to – it's like a special forces training course he creates. Sure. And it's, it, this kind of stuff is fun. It makes you smile, but and yet Paz's dialogue. Again, I don't write Paz's dialogue. Paz writes Paz's dialogue. Nola Delgado writes Nola Delgado's dialogue. And if you're the challenge of writing a first book is immense and enormous in itself. The challenge of writing a tenth book featuring the same characters yeah. that, conti- that is just as fresh 
and just as vital and just as interesting is, and this is why I have so much respect for Lee Child, Reacher is an anti-series. Even James <laughs> Bond grew and evolved through the course of the James Bond novels. Um, or devolved is a better way of putting it. If you read them in order, he's a shell of his former self. From Casino Royale, the first book in the series, to Man with the Golden Gun, the last book of the series, he's an entirely different human being. Um, Lee has only one character who keeps reappearing. It's the same book over and over again, and yet every time it feels fresh. That's a testament to Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher has learned nothing. He's no different than he was in The Killing Floor. He's the same exact person. It's, anti, it's, anti, it's, anti, it's counterintuitive to what great storytelling is, and yet it works. Mm. It works. Whereas the rest of us are, 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 knocking, are, are killing off relatives, having <laughs> wives and children kidnapped. I mean, Steve Berry did this with Cotton Malone. Um, Vince Flynn and what now Kyle Mills did it with Mitch Rapp, her, his, his wife being killed by terrorists. I think that might have been, you know, um, so it's like you're, you're, you're looking for new ways to keep your series alive. And the brilliance of Lee Child, and now Andrew Grant, who's writing his brother Andrew, is, is, is writing with him. Um, I think it might be Andrew Child. I don't know if it's Andrew Grant on the cover. Um, uh, Grant is Lee's real name. Uh, so he, I, I don't know how he does it, but it's, it's a testament to his genius. Because no one else is doing it. Dave Roby Show, the great character from James Lee Burke, has had four wives, four <laughs> different wives in the course of his books, which is unbelievable. I think that's a record, by the way. Um, you know, and, and, that's, it's a te- and it's a testament. Um, Robert Parker said, used to say, that the biggest mistake he ever made as a writer was early on in the series calling Spencer a, a veteran of the Korean War which means he's now an 88-year-old private detective. <laughs> so you run the risk of dating your characters. You yeah. run the risk of aging your characters. But in my mind, there, the element of cr- credibility depends on some degree of realism. And that's what I try to lend to the stories in addition to the dialogue and the characters. Yeah, no, that's great. And, boy, I, you know, a couple of the things that you said that I really liked, you know, was like that you cut the leash uh, and let the characters be the characters. I feel like so many authors, you know, ask, well, what would this character do? And my question is, what would the character do if I got out of the way? And all of a sudden, that's when a really interesting character pops up and appears. And I'd like you to talk for a second about the credibility that you just mentioned, John, is that the believability factor, like when you're writing a thriller or a mystery or one of your Caitlin Strong stories, um, how do you keep it believable even if it's, they're doing extraordinary things? You know, that's a wonderful question, and I'm going to quote the great Robert Louis Stevenson, who coined the phrase, the suspension of disbelief. Mm. It doesn't matter to me if you believe what I'm writing is real. All that matters to me is that you do not disbelieve it. So it's a matter of credibility. Let me give you a specific example to address this. In, when I was writing the screenplay for the pilot of Caitlin Strong, um, the most important ten pages in a pilot is the opening scene. The first time you meet the hero, the first time that, is go- that might determine whether it sells or not. 
Well, I didn't like the opening scene for the for the pilot. Yeah. Which is based on the first book in the series, Strong Enough to Die. But I didn't think it was strong enough. No pun intended. <laughs> um, but in Strong from the Heart, I have an opening scene where it's based on a true story. Based on a true story, Steve. You're going to know my politics when I get into this. <laughs> Caitlin is called to an elementary school in San Antonio where six kids are about to be arrested and deported by ICE while their parents are at work. That's a true story. Caitlin, the, the kids and the teachers and the principal have barricaded the school. There are hundreds of people watching. ICE is armed. They're wearing body armor. and they're gonna, This is all for little kids, right? Okay. Caitlin shows up, um, and this is the opening scene of the latest book in the series, which I moved to the prologue, to basically the opening scene of the pilot, even sure. though it's 11 books later. Because basically, she, you, know if you're, if, you know the hero is not going to give up six kids to ICE. Yeah. But how is one Texas Ranger going to stop six heavily armed men? Well, she comes up with a way, but here's the point I want to get to. Yeah. In the book... Guillermo Paz rides to her rescue when it's clear they're not going to let her go with the six kids in tow. He shows up because he's working for Homeland Security now, and he's got two M4s, he's seven feet tall, and most of these ICE agents, you know, they train with guns, but they've never fired them. They're not, they're not military. They're not even yeah. cops. You know, most cops have never, pulled their, have never fired their weapons. So I had an out for Caitlin, but I don't have that. In the first scene of the pilot, we haven't met Guillermo Paz yet. Yeah. So I had Caitlin shoot two ICE officers in the leg when it looks like it's going to become a gunfight. So that's what we, we're going to go out with. And then um, my producer uh, had a friend of his who's a terrific big-time writer. And the writer absolutely loved it, loved the pilot. Said, oh, my God, this is a slam dunk. I can't believe how good, you know, what a great character. All right, but you've got a pro- but one problem. Could a Texas Ranger really get away with shooting two ICE agents? Yeah. And the producer asked me that. And I said, no. In reality, she'd never work in law enforcement again. So right on the spot, we came up with the idea. We inserted a, a little dialogue where, she's talk, where she compliments the, uh, the, the head ICE guy on the body armor they're wearing. And I'm actually using the real body armor that ICE does use. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. Level 3 tack vest is basically what it's called. And she compliments them. So now... I rewrote it so she shoots them both in the vest, which basically, you know, knocks the wind out of them, yeah. um, punches them to the ground. But no, no, no she didn't shoot them. You know, I love, you know, the, the credibility of, of shooting someone in the leg and then they get up and walk away. Uh-uh. You know, yeah, that's not going to happen. Most people who get shot in the leg never walk, never walk without a limp and maybe never walk at all. Hmm. Um, you know, you start thinking about assault rifles, what, you know, that thing that happened in Kenosha where that 17-year-old kid killed two people. He wounded a third, and what no one wants to talk about is he blew his arms clean off. Hmm. Blew his arm off with an AR-15. That's the damage these guns can do. It's, it's not like, oh, I got shot in the shoulder, I just need a Band-Aid. No. So the credibility of shooting someone in the vest as opposed to the leg is, is monumentally better. So you need to be credible. You need to be believable. For, and let me give you the best example I can in, in, in answer to that question. Yeah. I never let something that can't be done stop me from doing it. If I want to kill 20 million people with a weapon, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find an expert. 
I'm going to find the research on Google to justify what I want to do. Writers can never let reality be, uh, stop them in their tracks. You have to find a way to make it credible. Not necessarily believable. Yeah. Just credible. Um, for my first mur- uh, uh, Murder on the Metro, uh, my first capital crimes book, Murder on the Metro, um, I was put in touch with a nuclear physicist um, because of something because I wanted to kill a lot of people by blowing up a nuclear facility. Mm. And he told me, well, you have a problem. That's the largest facility in the world for storing weapons-grade uranium. I said, yeah, I want to blow it up. I said, well, if you blow it up, that's not a toxic substance. You're not making a dirty bomb. For a dirty bomb, you need to use radioactive waste. That's what you have to use. You can't use highly enriched uranium because it's not, <laughs> it's not going to kill anybody. You know, you know the, the, poison, the poisonous aspects of it. So, I, again, I had to change the direction I was going in yeah. to make the book credible. Maybe not believable. Thrillers by nature are not believable. But they're credible. So it's a matter of making what you want to do work. Not, you, and, and this is why you don't write a book around research. If you write a book around research, you're showing off what you know. It, and, and the research comes to dominate the story. Let the facts become a tool. Let them not become the entire chest in themselves. Let them be a tool that you use as a writer to make your story better. I like that. You know, research it, clearly, like what you said, research is, it serves a purpose, has a role because you want to make, you know, the story as credible as possible. But but if you build your story around research and instead of tension instead of drama and pursuit and all of these things that lie at the heart of story, you're not going to have a strong story. Exactly. Um, and there are writers who are magical at being able to do both. Stephen Hunter, in his, narration, in his exposition describing what snipers, how snipers think and how they act, and you know, you're riveted because he's setting the stage of a sniper scene as the gun is about to be fired. So you, you want to, the velocity of the bullet matters because there's somebody who's going to get killed on the other end. If you just throw that scene in in general, it's, a, it's going to be a paragraph that, pe- that people skip. If I describe a tree in a novel, it's often because there's a sniper hiding in that tree. Uh, there you go, um, sure. you, know, it's, you know, the opposite of this is something like Centennial by James Michener, where the first five pages, I think it was, it was the first five paragraphs of the, of the novel are a description of a bush. Five <laughs> paragraphs on a bush. No! I can do two lines in a bush. Let the imagination of the reader fill in the rest. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting because I, I actually try to do the same thing as far as, you know, allowing the reader to picture it and feel something toward it, but then not over-describe it. I feel like the details can sometimes weigh down the scene that you're working on, that you're writing. No, no question about it. It's, it but it's also this. And again, we're getting way into the weeds here, but that's, that's the mission statement of, 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 this, of, of this show. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a matter, I, I remember, of one of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given as a writer, which came to me only probably about 10 years ago. I say only because I've been at this so long. Um, about 10 years ago, as my editor had seen an interview, I think it was with James Lee Burke, uh, 
And James Lee Burke said when writing a scene, he was asked to give one piece of advice to writers. And he said when writing a scene, always know where the light is coming from. If you do that, only the light, the light will tell you what your character is seeing and therefore what the reader needs to see. Don't write a scene from the outside looking in. Write a scene from the inside looking out from the POV of a single character. Um, third person omniscient. I don't even know if anybody else, anybody's even doing it anymore. It's clumsy. Much, yeah. It's awkward. It's dull. It, it, it's, it's, you know, um, every, so it basically, and I remember, you know, I'm, this sounds like a Lee Child uh, love fest, but <laughs> I, I, I said to Lee, um, uh, you know, we, we were at dinner one night. We have a, uh, this dinner we do every year before Thriller Fest with a bunch of people. And I said to Lee, hey, um, I love the latest Reacher. I was so glad that you went back to first person. I had read the book. I had reviewed the book. And Lee goes to me, it wasn't in first person. It was in third person. <laughs> but I had remembered it in first person because the perspective was all Reacher. The book was all, it was all what Reacher saw, what Reacher thought, what Reacher did. So it was kind of like internal monologue, which is dialogue, which is first person in that respect. Interesting, so, yeah. It, it, you know, you want to write from what you want. You don't want to write what you're seeing. You want to write what your character is seeing. When they're looking at a, at a, at a, at a villain, <clears throat> what is it they see about the villain that makes them think this is a bad guy? What is the mannerism? What is it, you know, um, you know, what is the, you know, what are the distinguishing characteristics that you're using for characters to make them stand out without becoming campish, without, you know, you can't give everybody a hunchback, you know, yeah. you can't give everybody a missing limb, you know, you, you, you uh, it, it's a matter of writing to the story, but also keeping in mind that villainous people say and do and look like villainous people. That, or let me put it this way, when you're describing someone you don't like and you don't want the readers of your book to like, pick on some things that are distinguishing, like jowls or yellow teeth or separations or, you know, just something about that person. I've used smells in the past. Mm. Um, I think it's very important when you're writing to use all five senses. Yeah. It's, and, you know, because if you can capture smells, you're going you're to be James Lee. Now you're James Lee Burke or Stephen King. Because mm. smells is the thing that goes often wanting in, in all books, but, but thrillers especially. But I, I love having villains who smell bad, you know. <laughs> I never have a good guy who smells bad, <laughs> you know. Um, but once in a while, you don't want to overdo it. But what are the, how the, the traits, the qualities that you can give a character to make them feel to the reader the way you feel about them. Well, John, this has been a great conversation. I can't believe that our time is actually up right now because uh, it went really quickly. I really enjoyed your insights, your stories, um, and I hope that people were taking notes on some of the other authors you men mentioned, actually some of the movies that you referred to. So um, I just want to remind our listeners that your latest Caitlin Strong book, Strain, uh, Strong from the Heart, is available now. Um, would you say that's a good book for people to start with, or do you like it when they start with the first one that you wrote? You know, I, I don't. I, I have never started 
any series that I fell in love with at the beginning. I didn't start Thorne, James W. Hall, Dave Roby Show, which is um, James Lee Burke, um, you know, Spencer. I mean, you name, you know, Robert Crace, you name the character. I always started them in the middle or near the end, then I went back. Mm. So I, I like it when the people start with the latest one because that's yeah. the one I always feel is the best. But a lot of readers today, because of digital, because books don't go out of print anymore, because of Kindles and Nooks and yeah. Kobo and all that, they really think, and I agree with them to a point, that you don't have to read these books in order, but you, I think you do. There's a lot of people who will enjoy the series more if they do. So okay. I don't blame anyone sure. who wants to start with Strong Enough to Die. Um, or what I tell people, the happy medium. Read the latest. If you like it, then go back and start at the beginning. Sure. Yeah, then go back and pick up the series that's, from the that's beginning. So. Yeah, and, and they can also try the land, the, the land rule. If you want to know if you're going to like one of my books... If you're in a bookstore, even if you're on Google or Amazon, you can get a few sample pages. Just go to any sample page and read it. If that page grabs you, that book is for you. If that page doesn't grab you, that book is not for you. That's mm. the land rule. I like it. But another land book might be for you. So that's the way you want to look at it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, well, John, thanks so much for being on the show. And um, can, can you give us any place online where people could connect with you, maybe social post or uh, social Yeah, you can you follow know, the best way. Um, you can find me on Facebook, John Land, or at John D. Land, J-O-N, middle initial D-L-A-N-D, all one word, at Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. That's my primary social media thing, and I don't do any politics on it. I just do pop culture and books and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so at John D. Land, or drop me an email at johnlandbooks.com, J-O-N-L-A-N-D, books.com, and I get the emails immediately, and I, and I never not return an email because I don't get all that many. So <laughs> I need more. Send me an email. Uh, no, that's great. So I've we... been getting a lot more lately, though. That's why I think Strong from the Heart is doing well. Yes, yeah, Strong from the Heart. Congrats on the book and and the series, number eleven in the series. So that's fantastic. It's a uh, um, it's a great series for people to who like um, who like thrillers, who like adventure, who like a strong you know female um, main character protagonist. So check out the Caitlin Strong series if you're listening. And um, everybody, also thank you for your time and for tuning in and listening. For more info about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com or search for us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.